as you enter the library from Rutland Street, there's a totra tree. There is the sign going with it, and it says, This totra tree was planted by the Auckland City Council to honour the memory of Ronald Allison Kells Mason, a native son of the city, 1905 to 1971. And then when you come to, into the library from Wellesley Street, Kawe Reo Voices Carry is a permanently carved into the steps as you come into the library, and also a text sculpture, Reo, which is also out there as you come into the library. And that made me think, well, there's actually quite a few poets who have been connected to the library, either physically like this, you've actually got a physical presence, or some other connection to the library. I'm Sue Berman. And I'm Benjamin Brooking. And in this episode, we are making connections with poetry, poets, and the Auckland Central Library. And of course, Auckland Libraries has both an extensive borrowing collection, as well as poetry books in our special collections. But not all poets have as strong an association and connection to libraries as the ones we'll hear about in this episode. I'm Elspeth Orwin. I work part of the Heritage team. Today I'm looking at some items from the collections that focus on poets and poets reading their work. You also have a few items in front of you. Um, What do these items have to do with those poets? So here I've got a record, a two-record collection called New Zealand Poets Read Their Works. Yeah, can you you tell me a bit more about this um, record Maybe first of all, describe the cover picture. So the cover is um, really quite distinctive. It is quite simple. It's a beer bottle with um, the label New Zealand Poets Read Their Works, New Zealand Poets. It's got a rose and a fern stuck in it, and it's sitting on a wooden table. It is It is like um, strikingly New Zealandy, and I don't know that I necessarily love that that's our, that's our cultural connection, but there is something about a brown glass beer bottle with a fern sticking out of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit DIY, isn't it, with the vase, you know, like using a beer bottle for a vase with the, yeah. with the oh look. But on the back we've got a, um, a pottery mug or vase, at this time quite a colourful flowers, a daisy, um, calendula, perhaps a couple of roses still. The other side, side of New Zealand poetry. poetry. Yeah, so we've got, I suppose I don't know whether it was intended that way, but we've almost got a feminine side and a and a more masculine side. Can you um, tell me a bit about just anything that you know about the the content of the record? I knew we had recordings of poets, but I found a lot of them were quite often recordings of other people reading somebody's poetry, or in a couple of cases there was poems that had been sung. And the thing I liked about this is that you actually got the poets themselves reading their own work. It was read the way you assume they wanted it to be read. A farewell. What is there left to be said? There is nothing we can say, nothing at all to be done to undo the time of day. No words to make the sun roll east or raise the dead. You must live, get on with your life. So it's a two-record collection. Um, it's a series collected and edited by Jane Kemp, Alan Smythe and Jonathan Lamb, who are themselves poets. But it's collected from very many places, uh, well, quite a few places. Poets both living at the time this was produced, which was 1974, 
The two poets I have um, chosen specifically were um, A.R.D. Fairburn, and that's because of um, what he's also written about the library at other times. He himself died in 1957, so it was um, produced well after his death. So his recording is thanks to the NZBC. The New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation, NZBC, was a publicly owned company of the New Zealand government, founded in 1962. The corporation was dissolved in 1975 and replaced by three separate organisations, Radio New Zealand, Television One and Television Two. The TV channels would merge again in 1980 to become Television New Zealand, while Radio New Zealand would remain unchanged. So it's quite interesting that NZBC made recordings of a number of, because a number of the poets here, that's where they've come from, so. Have you um, had a listen? I've listened to some of them, I haven't listened to all of them. What do you think? (laughs) Some of the poems now seem quite dated. Full Fathom 5. He was such a curious lover of shells and the hallucinations of water that he could never return out of the sea without first having to settle a mermaid's bill. Groping along the sea bottom of the age, he discovered many particulars he did not care to speak about, even in the company of water diviners. Things said... I started with Fairburn mainly because he was the oldest. And, you know, he, he's recorded on here, um, on the New Zealand Poets Read Their Work. Um, he was a great supporter of Auckland Public Libraries. Also on the ground floor, we've got a print of, of something he said when he spoke about public libraries on a talk in 1950s. But he finished it off with this comment. In this rapidly, even dizzily changing world we live in, the public library system is one of the things we can most surely rely on to preserve a core of sanity in the community and to help us keep our heads and avoid panic. (laughs) I sort of thought that was quite good. When was that written? He said that on a talk in 1950. It's timeless though, isn't it? It's sort of timeless, isn't it? I mean, he says a lot of other things, but that's um, how he finishes. So Fairburn, he met um, R.A.K. Mason, who we've already mentioned his tree. The Tortura tree is a substantial tree. It's growing just on the corner of Rutland Street and Lawn Street, like a poe for the Central Library. Its dedication to Mason is inscribed on a bronze plate on a plinth at the base of the tree. Fairburn, he met R.A.K. Mason at Auckland Grammar in about 1920, and Mason, um, also a poet, his first published volume was in 1924 and it was called The Beggar and it was poems mainly written when he was at school so he would have been quite young. And apparently the story's become legend in New Zealand literary history that Mason stood on, um, on the end of a wharf, he went to Queen's Wharf and dumped 200 copies of The Beggar into the Auckland Harbour because of his disappointment and disgust that nobody would buy it. So they didn't survive. <laughs> but he became known more as um, a political journalism and plays and radio and dance theatre. But it seems to be as a poet that, he, that he's actually remembered. You can hear more about Mason and the story of the beggar by tuning into another of Auckland Library's podcast series, Korotuturu, Real Gold, where rare book specialist Jane Wilde talks about the beggar in another of Mason's poetry volumes, No New Thing. Auckland Libraries is pleased to hold a rare surviving copy of The Bigger in special collections. So he died in 1971, which was the year this building was opened. And so the past and present librarians raised £400, which in 1971 would have been quite a lot. So a bust of Mason, and that was their gift to the library on the opening of, of this building, was a bust of Mason. 
It moves around the building a little bit. It's currently over in the research centre. Was the tree planted at the same time? The tree was planted. There was a little bit of um, controversy over the tree, thanks to the council. Um, it was a little bit later. So it had been proposed that there'd be some sort of memorial to him. And there were different things. A tree was suggested in Albert Park. Um, but then with the opening of the library, it seemed an appropriate place for the tree to, to go. So the third person I focused on was Hono Tufari. He, he was Napui. He was um, born up in Northland. He came to Auckland with his father. It's kind of really amazing that sort of where his life went. So he, he left school um, before secondary school. And this is what he said. So for Tauwhari, reading was the key to a magic kingdom. A little like discovering sex, he later said. And he read anything he could lay his hands on. And book clubs became his haven. So he joined, first of all, the London Book Club, which was in Wellesley Street, and the Strand Book Club, which was in Eardow Street. And later on, a, a school friend um, took him to the children's section of the Auckland Public Library, and that was free, um, which, of course, was even better. So he began to write and publish poetry in 1956. He'd begun writing in his teens, and he worked for New Zealand Railways, and so he was chalking lines on the side of um, railway carriages. And it was there that he met a fellow trade union, R.A.K. Mason. So Tufari's debut collection was this book, No Ordinary Son, and that was published in 1964, and it has an introduction from Mason. He'd already started reading... Um, in various venues um, and he'd been published. So this little volume, there were 700 copies of this first edition and it sold out within 10 days. It ran to three editions and 12 reprints over three decades, which is quite amazing for a, um, any New Zealand poet. Um, so he and his achievements as a poet were recognised with lots of awards and honours um, and eventually he sort of made his living as a writer and a poet. So although his connection to the library is a lot less than the, the other people I've sort of spoken about, the library and reading was so important to, to his um, getting where he did. We'd recommend that you go online to Tiara, Dictionary of New Zealand Biographies, entry on Hone Tufare, which includes a great reading of No Ordinary Son in Tufare's own voice. The next poets are connected even more specifically with this building. And the first one was Ian Sharp, and he was born in Glasgow, and he came to Auckland. He was about eight. So he was a columnist, reviewer, editor, author and poet, but he was also an assistant um, librarian in the rare books room in the late 1970s. And until his retirement a few years ago, about four or five years ago, he was manuscripts librarian here in Special Collections. So while he was at university in the 1980s, he participated in pub poetry reading. And we've got two cassette tapes and the voices of 42 New Zealand poets reading their own works at the Globe Tavern in Auckland. The nevertheless incredibly happy poem. Well, here it is at last, folks. The nevertheless incredibly happy poem. Yes, happy. Remember? So the Globe was a um, tavern in Auckland near Auckland University. So that, and there was like a weekly platform where recognised poets and, and upcoming poets could go and read. So it's a second example of poets reading their own work. Are the Globe tapes, are they recorded live in the pub or are it's, they, I like believe, is it an event? No, I think it's, it's live in the pub over um, quite a period of time. 
What kind of era are we in here? 70s or 80s? This is 80s. This is 1980s. That is a first edition? This is a first edition. Um, and, we, of course, we've got numerous copies of the later editions. Your head, smile, dance, rouse your rump, jive your jelly, boogie your booty, flamenco your flab. It's wonderful to hear people's voices. Ian Sharp, even though he's lived in New Zealand for... 60 plus years, occasionally that Scottish accent will still come out. So you, you actually hear perhaps something in somebody's voice that you wouldn't necessarily think about otherwise. Lo and behold, the deity peeked out from behind a puff of white cloud and spake unto me, saying, Hi there, Sharpie, you daft drunken bugger. Chin up, old son. Taller mercies of beaming your way. Be incredibly happy. Then I moved on to Robert Sullivan, who, as I say, he's, he's got a physical presence, but as you come into the library, his poem. You may remember Elspeth mentioning both the Trotara tree and the carved steps in the intro to the story. Well, here's the skinny or the story on those carved steps. So Robert was born in Auckland in 1967. Um, he also is an He He's poet and academic. He's published internationally in numerous collections of poems um, and also widely anthologised. So he worked in the what was known as the Rare Books Room in I think the 1980s. Um, he's also worked at Auckland University Library. Kia ora tātou. I used to work at this library a very long time ago. You know, libraries have played an important part in my life. Um, as, as, a, as a young boy at Onihanga Public Library, and of course as a librarian and really admiring our, our profession, because once a librarian, always a librarian. Oh, well, I was so super honoured, really, to be asked to write this poem. Kawereo, Voices Carry. Voice carries us from the foot of Rangipuke, Sky Hill, Albert Park, to the Wai Horatu stream chuckling down Queen Street, carrying a he-ha, he-story from prams and seats library, gifted by our people who saved the words of our ancestors for one and all. Kia ora. Why poets and libraries seem, in this instance, to be hand in hand? Well, I'll just read one thing and you can decide for yourself. So ARD Fairburn produced something that he called A Litany for Librarians on the occasion of a conference of the New Zealand Library Association in Auckland in 1953. And it goes on a bit, but it starts. From those who use books to squash bugs, beetles and spiders and to prop up the corners of wardrobes and pianos, good Lord deliver us. From constant readers who eat chocolate butterscotch, polonies, asparagus and butter sauce or goblets of fat bacon and lick their fingers to turn a page. And he goes on. From those who browse standing up like horses, from those who take root like trees, from those who disagree in ink or pencil, and et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any uh, memories of your own that sort of make you make you channel Fairburn? Um, I mean, I came across a book which had a, a, an egg squash in it you know, somebody had put an egg in it and just squashed it. And, you know, this was, uh, by the time, you know, it was found, it was turned to glue. 
Yeah, and I've certainly encountered quite a few of the <laughs> the other things. And I, I will mention perhaps the um, the comment about middle-aged men and, and, and younger librarians. I think because people can come, it's a public space and anybody can come in, and not necessarily young librarians, because people can come in and perhaps if they're a bit lonely and you will talk to them because it is, in a way, part of your job, there are definitely people that, you know, sort of offer more than you want. <laughs> Become quite friendly, ask you out. Have you been asked out? I have. (laughs) Not recently, of course, but. Mason himself apparently, you know, had confidence that libraries would survive, and he said, It is some consolation to know that in some thousands of years from now, a piece of dust that is stung by old empires and years for its kindred may find a congenial resting place in an old neglected Masonic book in some quiet slumbering library. So he obviously thinks that libraries are going to survive. And he obviously hopes that his books will be found in libraries. Every one of them is a a published poet. And I'm sure their first wish is that their books of poems will be bought. But ultimately, if they're going to survive for decades or forever, that it will be within a library. There's a great heritage at our blog written about Mason and his connection to the libraries that's worth a read. We'll include the reference in the published notes. So can I, can I recite this one? Yes. yes. This is called Landing 42 Wanganui Avenue. Thunderbirds are go, F.A.B. Virgil. Nah, more like F.O.B. Scott. Vacated distant Falafar land in Samoa to better lives in Nusila. Brains not brawn, high demand. Now just just Syrians to reprimand. Next door old Mr. and Mrs. Ward. There goes the neighbourhood. Had to jam more tins than a sardine than five families ever could. Cashed in family benefits to scrape a foot up property ladders. But land of opportunity, just a trap for unwanted overstayers. We're a bunch of hopeful islanders. Diaspora, it's in our blood. Look out, Gold Coast Labour Force. Here comes the second flood. My name is, is Ha'ayuli. I'm not really a poet. I, I tell stories, you know, that disguised as poems. Yes. And what I do now, I like to do my artwork and it's built into the poems, or the poems are built into the artwork. And we're speaking in one of my favourite libraries, the Auckland Central Library. Yeah. I'm 70, I'm going 71 in August, so I've been around, I've been in Auckland since 1956, so I'd say Auckland is my hometown. It's my being, it's part of my being. I, People have often asked me if would I go back to Samoa. No, <laughs> no, this is it. And I don't even associate with what they call the Samoa. You know, the, the way of Sa- the Samoa. My, I, I don't at all. I, I'm, I'm like a Jaffa or even a something like a, a member of the Blue Rinse Brigade. <laughs> Tell us about the sort of the subject, the inspiration for your words, like your poetry. What what do you draw on when you write? Experience, a lot of life experience. Yeah, especially with place and time. For instance, Tamaki Drive, it's like the Mackenzie Basin 
for me, you know, the waterfront there and just stand there. That's what I need to do. Do poems serve at all for you as a, as a place and time, as a memory bank? Very much so, very much so. And I always mention a, a name or a place. Some of my poems that haven't been brought out yet, I actually try to bring in other bits of area around me, for instance. I was writing a poem around St Albans Street, and what I noticed around it is that there was always this Chinese restaurant. They kept changing its name. So I decided, bugger it, I'm going to write the name of the poem when the cafe was at a particular name. So that fixed the time in which I wrote that poem because I know that in maybe next week, even next month, the name of the cafe would change because the, the owners would leave and someone else would come. And I used that to fix to something else that was happening across the road. Yeah. So names and places, names and places are very important at that time or at a time. In fact, even a lot of places, I remember it from my mind. And yet when I go back to these places, they're gone. I say, what happened to it? Where is it gone? So I had to use the library here. And that helps me build up the image from, from that time. Yeah. I wanted to put in a poem, something about the Bo Peep. It was a, it's a nightclub. This is in Durham Lane. And then what happened is I went downtown later on at the end of the poem to this place called the Wimpy Bar. And what I found in the actual directory is that in 1970, it had moved to the Custom Street. But the year before... In the, in the directory, and it was still up here in Shortland Street somewhere. So, was, ah, that's a, a quarter, a snippet of time where some, there was a change. And that's what that library does. It gives me these little gems that, you know, I can say, oh, I've, yeah, I become euphoric. Says, I've discovered something that no one else would know about, you know, a change of, of place in time. And it's all while I'm doing the poetry. <laughs> what can you tell me about being in this place? like Auckland Libraries, the Central Library. Do you spend much time here? Not as much as I'd like to. In fact, I'd like to move from where I am in Sandringham and live somewhere in, in Auckland Central, you know, feel the, the, the buzz, you know, the traffic, and, you know, I'm not here to sleep, I'm here to listen. What do you mean by that? It's just listening to, sometimes, I could be in a restaurant or somewhere, and I can't, I don't looking at what people are doing. I'm listening. And I'm trying to get the vibe of what they're what they're all about. In fact, even in the old days before we had these smart cameras, you know, the smartphones, you had to use your, your mind as the camera in order to write the poem. In 2021, Darren Kamali, himself a published poet, born and raised in Fiji, did a piece of work in collaboration with the Auckland City Mission. Darren is another in a line of libraries-affiliated poets. Back in 2021, Darren led a group which gathered weekly to develop their poetry writing skills, and Tar was part of that group, which published an anthology called Rough Life Speak. That book is available to borrow from Auckland Libraries. It's been very important to bring me back to poetry, Rough Life Speak, because I had sort of abandoned the poetry side of it, and it was because of the um, Rough Life Speak that I was sort of incentivised to to produce the work that had that just led it side go aside and of course I produced what I call my haiku nine and from there on it accelerated because I've got 15 in the first series of poems what I call it 15 in the second 15 in the third and the last series 15 
it's like a game, you know, you want to show how good you are, you know, what you do. And that's that's what egged me on. And that's what's what the uh, Rough Life Speaker has done to me. Yeah, it's pushed me. I'll tell you one of my really happy poems. Yes, it's got elements of um, library stuff in it. And this, the last line of this poem was actually inspired by my sister, one of my sisters, because the, the poems, the haiku night hadn't come at that time. So I was still looking for the last line of the poems to make it the ninth line of the haiku nine poem. And this last line was what really capped it off. Says, yeah, that's the one I'm looking for. So here goes. Took some doing to extract sponsor uncle from his family navel. But joy, oh joy, for birthday boy, dying late on a Thursday night. Mary stands respectfully, with pencil glued to tokenistic notepad. Mist apron contrasts neat, Helen Shapiro hair, wistful smile. Steak eggs and chips with lashings of bread and butter, please. Dalmatian dialects fused in with sizzling kitchen aromas. Next! Baseball bat under counter to deter those trying to do a runner. Ah, them's a rough and ready times, and workers were kings. Last AQs, way down the road. Did you go? Say what? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, us. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, us. Yeah. So, because we are a public library and therefore open to absolutely anybody, we get a really wide range of people coming and using the library for so many different reasons. A lot of people will just want to borrow a book and, and leave and, and perhaps spend no time whatsoever. Um, we have other people that come in almost on a daily basis. Sometimes they'll come and just sit and read. It's a pleasant place to be. You don't have to spend any money here. And then we get people who come here because of their work. Um, they have to research all sorts of things. Not everything is online. You can't Google every single piece of information in the world. And so some people do have to come and visit us for a reason. And often that will just be for a short period of time. So we have people coming in for so many different reasons from so many different walks of life. That is ultimately, I think, what is really interesting is what people ask to see. And so these particular recordings are part of the music collection. Um, but as well as these recordings, there are, we have oral history recordings, which again are not books. We have like photographs and maps and ephemera. Ephemera is just sort of those sorts of things that you would perhaps normally throw away. They're not, they weren't produced to be kept. The other non-book material, it's often closer to real life, if you like. It, it's sort of history in the making rather than somebody's opinion of history. So, so much of the material that we do have here, perhaps not the things I've spoken about today, in other countries or in other institutions, you can't just ask to see, you've got to have a reason to see them, but there's almost nothing that we have here that can't be seen, whatever your reason for wanting to see it. What do you think about that? I think that's great. And unfortunately, I can't remember the saying, but there's that saying, isn't there, that um, if a tree falls and there's nobody there, it doesn't make a sound. Is that the way it goes? If you've got a book which nobody can see or read or look at, is there any point to it? So, yeah. And it was really interesting what you said before about how so many of um, these poets, their early works, as far as what is accessible, that it's only here is really um, quite unique. Yes, because most volumes are poems. 
a very, very short runs because, I mean, Hone Tuwhare and No Ordinary Sun has, has to be the exception, um, the amount that's sold of, of that particular work. But most don't. And I think poetry is, quite often it's the way authors start out. Even primary school children often are encouraged to write. That's how often how um, I think literature starts. Um, writers perhaps start writing poetry and then sort of possibly go on to something else. So unless the library keeps copies, which of course we do, um, even if poets that perhaps aren't commercially um, successful, <laughs> we do still have a record of, of their poems. I love the weave of the story of poetry and poets connected to Auckland libraries, including the physical reminders that are in place through carved words on steps and a totara tree. Thanks to Special Collections Senior Librarian Elspeth Orwin and to Ta Uli for your contributions to this story. You can find a list of references for this episode in the published notes or get in touch with us by emailing libraryresearch at aucklandcouncil.govt.nz and we'll make sure you can find the collection of your interest. This series is made with Auckland Library's content creation funding and is part of a wider series of short films now called The Collections Talk, available to view online. This episode was written and produced by me, Sue Berman. It was recorded and produced by me, Benjamin Brooking. And edited and engineered by me, Juliana Machado. This has been Nako, the Collections Podcast, Auckland Poets and Libraries. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear the rest of this series and more from Auckland Libraries.